The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. We're glad you found us. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Fascinating interviews and compelling conversations. Be present. The Diane Ray Show. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. And thanks so much for being present with me for just a little bit. So today we're going to talk about anger. And I think you would agree that it seems like people are angrier than ever. I was doing some research online, uh, just looking up rage. You know, when you type that in, all kinds of stuff comes up. Road rage incidents have been on the rise. You know, they've climbed nearly 500% in 10 years. 500%. I can't Mm. believe that. Now, the same thing with flying. I don't know if you've flown recently, but it's a a rage-inducing experience. That's for sure. Tighter seating, you know, alcohol consumption, fewer flight attendants. I mean, this has caused a huge spike in pissed off flyers recently. It's <laughs> so anytime you have a large group of humanity packed together, there's going to be problems. And then forget it. If you look on your Facebook feed, you know, it's even worse. There's a lot of angry people online with polar opposite points of view. We just can't seem to get along. So I'm really happy to welcome my guest today. He's going to be offering some solutions to this problem and ways that we can better manage anger and conflict. So my guest today is Dr. Christian Conti, and he's a licensed professional counselor, a certified domestic violence counselor, and a level five anger management specialist. Level five, I guess that's the highest that you can get when you're dealing with anger. He's the creator of what he's calling the yield theory, and this is a powerful approach to change for treating anger issues. And I was just spending some time with his latest book. It's called Walking Through Anger and really presents some great techniques and things that we can do to handle these conflicts a lot better. So Christian, welcome to the show today. I'm glad you could join me. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You're so right. I was laughing because in your intro, because you're so correct. If you've flown recently, you understand you put a bunch of people in a small space and you put them in trying situations where patience is needed. And yes, you you watch anger boil over quickly. Yeah, it's been getting worse. I mean, every time I fly, well, usually I fly with some kind of sedation. I don't know if other people do that, but it seems like I have to. And I never was a nervous flyer or anxious before that, but it seems recently, well, definitely since 9-11, where we have to go through this whole ordeal and TSA and all this stuff, just flying is so anxious and and rage-inducing. I mean, people just are angry and we're so angry and separated and divided more and more these days that we, we really need you. So I'm really glad that you could talk about this topic today because people are, are just 
are just pissed off, you know, and it and it's pushing people to do things that I I know they regret. That's probably not really in their nature. And so we we need your help. <laughs> we need you to kind of lay out, you know, what you talk about in the book. And um, I just finished it. I really would recommend that people read this book, Walking Through Anger. I learned some things. And actually, even before I started this interview, I learned uh, a way that I could approach people in a, in a much better and more constructive way. I had some guy out there sawing before I was starting the show today next door. They're doing some work. And so I had to go over there and talk to him, you know, rather than scream and say, you know, stop what you're doing. You're driving me crazy. <laughs> you know, I had to negotiate and he agreed, you know, so hopefully it'll stay quiet uh, for the duration of the show here. So you do offer some really great, uh, tips and techniques in the book. Now, reading through the book, you say you draw from a lot of Buddhist wisdom in the work that you do, and I could definitely see that as I read through. So can you share how these Buddhist teachings have impacted you and how you, how you came to, to study them? Yes, absolutely. And I think we'll take it as a per you and I will take it as a personal challenge that if the saw comes back, comes back on that we can practice what we're teaching. So that'll be wonderful. Um, yes, I think, uh, honestly, Buddhism has impacted me deeply on a, on a, on a spiritual level. I mean, it's something that my family and I embraced. My wife and daughter and I would consider ourselves practicing Zen Buddhists. One of the things that, that the Buddha taught that is, Real, that really resonates with me is this concept of non-attachment. So the concept of non-attachment is, well, the most easy way, the easiest way to look at it is in terms of our possessions. For instance, you know you are not your, let's say you have a nice necklace. You're not that necklace. If that necklace goes away, you're not less of a person. You just don't have the necklace you liked. And, and, and I think people, for the most part, can recognize that they are not their things, fairly quickly in today's world. But the reality is that we are also not our thoughts. And that, Diane, is one of the most powerful aspects to understanding that I got from, from the Buddha, which is, look, we all say that we still have more to learn. Everyone out there says, oh, yeah, I still have more to learn. But the moment someone disagrees with you, the first thought is, you're wrong, I'm right. <laughs> and now all of a sudden that I have more to learn goes flying out the window. <laughs> so that's one of the primary things I learned from the Buddha, which is actually being backed by modern neuroscience. Right. Non-attachment, just not attaching ourselves to our thoughts. And and our thoughts aren't facts, right? Well, right. And it, and it doesn't mean that we can't believe something strongly. What it means is this. Look, uh, Robert Burton, who did, he's one of the leading neuroscientists in the world. Uh, he does a lot of research around the idea of certainty. And so what his research has demonstrated, 35 years in doing this stuff, he's learned that when people feel like they're certain about something, like I'm certain my perspective is right, <laughs> that certainty is act actually registers as an emotion not as a thought, not as a cognition. So whereas you might think you're being really intellectual by being certain about your position, you're actually being emotional. You're not being intellectual. So anything you feel really certain about is an emotion, not an intellect. And that radically transforms the way you see the world because now all of a sudden, instead of saying, I'm right, everyone else is wrong, everyone who disagrees with me is wrong, you now say, if I feel this right, this must be an emotion and there's much more to learn. 
Well, you say in the book that your mind wants to match your body. And I thought that was such an interesting observation, just just what you're discussing. So our, our mind kind of races to, to match those feelings? Yes. So I taught, uh, I was a tenured professor before I left that world of academia and, and, and I'm in the world that I'm in today, but I specialized in teaching theories for, for, for more than a decade. And when I would dive into these theories, there was one in particular called cognitive behavioral therapy, which is beautiful, wonderful, extraordinarily helpful. It's centered in the idea that our thoughts determine our feelings. So in other words, it's not the event of the world that makes us mad. It's what we tell ourselves about that event that makes us mad. And that's awesome. I think, Diane, I think that's a great approach. What I have found in my own experience is that doesn't tell the whole story. In other words, I also believe that sometimes your thoughts could be really pure, beautiful, and centered in positivity, but you could still feel off. For instance, let's just take the most basic rudimentary one, and that is if you're hungry. If you're really hungry and you've gotten into arguments with your loved ones because either you or your loved one was overly hungry, then you understand the concept that sometimes when you're hungry, your mind wants to match, race to match your body. So your mind might say, well, I'm really agitated right now. It must be because of you. It must be because of something you're doing rather than accepting the reality that Sometimes our body is off and our mind just wants to match it. Right. And hence the term hangry. <laughs> yes. That's come That's up. such a great term. <laughs> it makes sense, right? It does. It does. Well, so here's my analogy for people. If Imagine right now that we all downed three energy drinks. So if we downed three energy drinks, our body would, our heart would start racing fast, would start shaking a little bit, and our body would mimic anxiety. And then once our body felt anxious, our mind would want to make sense out of that. And here's the most fascinating aspect of what I've learned over the last 21 years in this field, is if I can't find an immediate story, my mind will race to the latest story that made me upset. So either I look backward and I say, man, Diane, you and I got in an argument three weeks ago and you never did give me a final answer on that. <laughs> or I say, uh, oh, I have, I have, um, I'm supposed to be somewhere tomorrow. and I'm in the wrong part of the country. So our mind wants to match how our body feels. And that's an important thing to remember, right? So that we yes. don't get caught up, you know, just know that our mind is searching to make sense of what our body is feeling. Yes. And and it really is the opposite of a of an approach like like cognitive behavioral therapy that says oh, your thoughts determine your feelings. In other words, what you're what you say to yourself is the result. That's what causes your feelings. I love that. I think there's a huge part of that that's absolutely on point. I think there's another piece that says sometimes our bodies just really feel off and our mind wants to make sense of it. I'd like to talk about the origin of yield theory and how it works. And I think it's interesting that you've used this approach to work with people as different as celebrities, you know, high level athletes and people dealing with addiction and then really violent criminals. And with all this array of, of people, these, these different people, what would you say is the commonality? I mean, do you think we all, I mean, anger is anger. Is that true? Or do we process yeah. process it differently? I mean, when you work with a celebrity or an athlete, it's got to be different than someone in maximum security prison. 
We think that, Diane, but here's the reality. My tagline for the last 21 years has been this. <laughs> you named all the type of people I work with and have for the last couple of decades. I think that the world boils down to two kinds of people. There are, and this is really important to understand, there are people who have issues and then there are dead people. So <laughs> if you're alive, you have issues. So do I. So does everyone. We all have issues. Right. And so that's that's really the common denominator, right? We all have issues or or we'd be dead and wherever wherever you go after <laughs> right. that, where there's no issues. <laughs> right, right, right. But 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 so the point of that is of of and I say it, you know, to to for humor, but at the same time, I really buy into it because no matter who I sit with, no matter if somebody has a name recognition or somebody's struggling in the depths of, of solitary confinement, we're all human beings and human beings have emotions and every emotional experience. And this is one of the most freeing things that I share with people, but every emotional experience has a beginning, a middle and an end, which means no matter what we go through, eventually it will change but here's the here's the key, and this is true for all of us. Think about wherever you are listening out there right now in your life, your emotions, they will come and go, but your actions cannot be undone. And that's very powerful to truly understand. Right. You can't unring the bell, so to speak. You know? It just <laughs> right. doesn't work. Right. <laughs> No, and so the people, so the people who are in maximum security prisons have taken that to an extreme. But here's where I see the challenge for many people, and that is we tend to believe that others are look, we have a tendency to minimize the pain we cause, but maximize the pain others cause. So if we do something and we hurt someone, we say, well, I didn't mean to do that, so don't take it as that. <laughs> but if someone else hurts us or someone else does something we don't like, we amplify it. I can't believe that person did that. And we continually downplay the harm we cause. We continually maximize the pain others cause. And we delude ourselves into believing that we're different or that people who hurt people are monsters. But the truth is we're all on a continuum. And if you call someone else a name, whether you know that person personally or whether it's a celebrity or somebody on television that you don't like, if you call that person a name, you're objectifying that person and you are doing the very same thing. And this is like wide awake. This is absolutely can be stunning for some listeners. But the truth is, if you call people names and you're objectifying others, that's on a that's on the same continuum of what, for instance, the Nazi soldiers did when they stamped uh, Jewish people with a number so that they could say, I'm hurting this number. I'm not hurting this human being with a family, with a life. I'm saying I'm just hurting this number. Well, that's what objectifying people is. Right. It just dehumanizes them in a sense. Yep. And you say in the book too, I, this, this really struck me kind of along what you're just talking about, that people see actions, not intentions. Right. And, and that's, yeah. that's so important too, because like, like you were saying, they, you know, if someone doesn't have that intention, we don't know that, you know, what they're thinking. We just, we just see the action and then react to that. Right. 
that's it. That's it. And you know, we can't see each other right now, but I'm like jumping out of my chair as you start to say that, because even though you can't see it, like the, my intention is for you to feel that because I'm so excited that you picked that part out because yes, I think that's one of the most powerful lessons I teach. I actually created that lesson based on, uh, about 15 years ago, I had a guy in one of my violent offender in my anger management groups. And the guy said, man, doc, they got me in this group because um, I didn't even touch my wife. I never even touched her. So I said, well, tell me what happened. Well, I knew what happened, but I said, tell me what happened. Well, what happened was he and his wife got in an argument and he took a 12 inch hunting knife and he stabbed up his air mattress. And he said, well, I never even touched her. So why did I go to county jail for this? Why am I sentenced to an anger management group? Well, well, he was sitting in the front of my group at the time. So imagine this, you're in a you're in a room full of people who are sentenced to anger management. There's an angry guy in the front of the group who's saying, I don't belong here. I never laid a hand on anyone. And he was true about that. He never touched anyone. So what I did was I said, what I want you to do is, I, and he was sitting in the front of the group and I'm standing up as I'm, I'm, I'm teaching this group. And I said, imagine now that you're your wife. Now watch this. And what I did was I took my pen and I pretended like I'm stabbing an air mattress facing the other way. And when I turned around, I was standing over top of him and I just let out an exhale like, Rah! And, he, and I looked at him and he looked at me and he, and he said, and I said, now, what are you thinking when someone's standing over top of you with a knife after you've just gotten into a, a really heated argument? And he got dead quiet. You could have heard a pin drop in that room at that time. And he looked at me and he said, that I should be here. You're right. I should have gone to jail and I should have been here and I should be here. And I said, my man, that's, that's a powerful for you to understand. And right then and there, I said it and I've been writing about it for the last 15 years. People see your actions, not your intentions. I said, the truth is maybe you never thought in your head you were going to kill your wife, but how in the world could she have known that? All she saw was you were furious, furious, stabbing a mattress. You turned around and you looked at her with that knife in your hand. And he said, I get it. I see it. You're right. hundred percent. How could she have known? So this is a very, very powerful lesson. Wow. That, that terrifies me just listening to that. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> right. You know, how would I react to something like that? But the fact that he got it, that's so important. And it just makes me think, I wonder how, how would you work with some of these people? Like, I don't know if you saw this viral video that went around of this family at Disney World where there was a huge fight and people were kind of standing around and they were afraid to engage with this angry guy where it had escalated. Like people were getting hurt and slapped and it was like this whole big family oh, wow. brawl at, at Disneyland wow. recently. And I wonder, you know, did, oh, you didn't see that? Oh, you should see it. It was no, but I tell you, I promise you, Diane. And this is historically, you can check anyone that who's ever even met me. I would have stepped up to that, and, and that's why the whole book's called "Walking Through Anger" because it's about approaching that stuff head on. But I do it in a way that circumvents the fight or flight response. So I would have been the first to step to that guy. I do it all the time in maximum security prisons. But there's a difference between stepping to someone to say you're wrong, you're bad. And stepping to someone and actually getting the result we want, which is peace. We want people to calm down. We want them to get there. It's just not going to work by stepping up to them and going, and I didn't even see the situation. I have no idea. But 
it's not I, one thing I promise you didn't work was somebody coming up to him going, you need to calm down because <laughs> when has that ever worked in the history of the right. world? Right, <laughs> And you say in the book that just makes people more defensive. Now, I have to say, though, I, I Googled you to see what you look like. And I think that you would probably have a much better reaction in trying to diffuse a situation than maybe I would. I don't know. <laughs> what do you think about that? Right. No, no, I don't know. And I, you know what, you're right. I mean, there's definitely an aspect to me that I'm a six foot, 250 something pound guy. I've got, I'm covered in tattoos. I'm a bald headed guy with a beard. I look like every other guy at a biker bar. Uh, so if you've ever been to a biker bar, that's what I look like. Um, but, and I do get that, that it's a part of it. However, I ran a center, I co-founded a center in South Lake Tahoe, California for people convicted of violent crimes. And my partner who I ran that with was a smaller woman and she was as effective. Like she could look at guys and, and the reason why I honestly think it boils down to that non-attachment. One of the things I taught her that she learned really well was to not be attached. So you can express an idea, but not say my idea is me. You can say, this is an idea I have. And if people reject that idea, if they challenge that idea, you don't have to take it personally because you say they're challenging the idea. They're not challenging the essence of who I am. Right. That's so interesting. I'm talking with Dr. Christian Conti about his book, Walking Through Anger. And you say it's important to walk through conflict. And, and I'm thinking of that that conflict of the video that I watched not too long ago, or just conflicts that I you know, I deal with in general that we all do. You say we all have issues and, right. but we, you can't avoid it. And I think uh, when I was reading in the book, you say we should resist the energy that others are sending our way in a conflict. And so maybe it's our natural reaction to avoid the situation, right? And just maybe detach, shut down, re refuse to engage and, and walk right. away. But that doesn't, not that doesn't really work though, right? Right, right. Because I, like my point in the book is that we don't – to, to implement yield theory, you don't resist the energy. I'm not resisting the energy because that's where – when we do resist the energy, that's where we get this, this fight. But if I can look at someone – let's say someone's really angry with me and so they call to unload on me. In fact, this happened recently. I had a guy um, reach out, uh, and this is always fun about being a public figure. You never know what you're going to get. You probably experience this. Um, but a guy wrote to me out of the blue anonymously and said, I think you're a joke. I think everything you do, <laughs> I think you're a joke. Everything you do is a joke. Uh, that's not real. So I wrote back to him and I said, sounds like you're having a really tough day. I can't imagine going through my day and thinking I'm going to pick out a complete stranger and just unload on him. So my heart goes out to you because you must be going through a lot. So then he wrote back and said, wow, I guess I reread what I wrote you and I'm really wrong. Like I was wrong. I, I apologize. I don't know why I went off on you. I think I'm just upset about this. And then he went off and then he, so I validated what he went off on. The next email I got from him, he told me his life story. And what I see is by me not taking it personally when he first came at me to attack me, he wasn't attacking who I am. He was attacking who he thought I was or who I thought I or what he thought I represented. And Diane, this is funny, but how many of us out there, um, you get into an argument with someone in your head when you're taking a shower. So you're by you're by yourself. You're taking a shower and you're arguing with someone in your head. And I laugh. I say, by the time you get out of the shower, you say, boy, I told them. And then, and then at some point when you're drying off, you look yourself in the mirror and say, 
I never talk to anybody. I'm talking to myself. <laughs> That's like, it's like playing chess with yourself. You know what the next move is going to be. And so a lot of people get caught up arguing in their minds about what's right, what's wrong, what their point is, what their side is. And they get themselves so hyped up that they lash out at the world. And why take that personally? So I look at people and I give them loving kindness no matter what they throw at me, because the truth is we're all struggling in some way. And what I find is time and again, I wasn't resisting the energy. So this guy reaches out, he's angry. I'm not resisting that going, don't talk to me like that. I'm not saying don't address me like that. I'm saying you're angry. You have a right to be angry and I'm validating it. And now it's a push-pull philosophy. If I push you and you push back, we struggle. If I push you and you pull me, I go flying. You know, that's and the that's such a truth. great way to handle that because, I mean, I've I've had the random, you know, email that you suck or, you know, right, 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 <laughs> or right. something. Because you put yourself out there every day. You do it every day. You put yourself out. So obviously people are going to be mad at you for no right, reason. Right, right. Or, some, you know, something like that. I mean, that's only happened occasionally. I remember one time I... I recorded an audiobook and it was one of the first ones I ever did. And I even did it for free just to have the experience. And I made the mistake of reading a review of the audiobook. <laughs> and they they just like skewered me. Like, oh, the reader sucked. This was terrible. And you know, and, and it was interesting because I took it personally at first and I was like, Oh yeah, you suck. Well, you know, and I'm I want to get in that mode, right? But then I thought I thought right, about right, right. it, and it was through. Um, I, I worked a lot with with Dr. Wayne Dyer, and he would always say, "Be independent of the good opinions of other people." Although I think Abraham Maslow right. probably said that first, but he was a big fan of Maslow, so he would always quote that. But so I thought, okay, this was one of the first ones I ever did. Maybe it wasn't that great, but it was a good experience for me, and I kind of talked myself out of my original defensiveness of what you said I suck, you know? <laughs> so I think it's, it's interesting, the approach that you, that you just described in dealing with that person, because that's something that we can all use whenever we're approached with that kind of, that kind of energy or those comments or someone unleashing. And it's so easy to do because now that we're behind the screen of our computers and we can be nasty to just anybody we want online. And yep. it's, it's so easy, yep. right? So that's a better way to it's, handle it's, it. It's no, but but it's true because look, look, I say this. I was I recently started a movement in a maximum security prison with the inmates and I said and I was going block to block and I and when if you go block to block and I talk to them during what's called block out. So imagine you have a bunch of inmates, 120 inmates per unit and maximum maximum security prison like the highest level. People did some really awful hurtful things. Um and they have uh, 2 hours of free time. And during which they might watch a movie, play cards or whatever. So I walked in each one of those blocks and I would just shut the movie off and say, let me give you a, like I was talking to them. Now you better be interesting and you better have something pragmatic for, for them when you do that. And the first thing I said to them was, look, you walk into a coffee shop and you say, I'm thirsty. What are they going to say to you? Well, what do you want? <laughs> and the way I look at it is in life is the same way. Like if you say to the universe, like, what do you really, what do you really want in life? And so I, I took it to its extreme and I thought, listen, if we sit down with someone, if you've ever sat with someone in hospice, it, the final moments of a person's life, they're not thinking, man, I wish I got over on this person. I wish I hustled on this person. They're thinking I want peace. And the truth is if we want peace, 
then we have to practice peace. We can't just wait till that final moment. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back and talk more with Dr. Christian Conti. So don't get angry. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Be Present, the Diane Ray Show. We're back. Thanks for joining me after the break. I'm Diane Ray talking to Dr. Christian Conti about his latest book, Walking Through Anger. And we're just sharing uh, some stories of dealing with anger with people online, which is really easy for people to do. It just gives people that anonymity that they feel they can just say or do anything. But the way that we react to it and what you were describing is so valuable and and so interesting for all of us. Like we really need to, you know, take a minute and, and think about that before we unleash on people online. So I wanted to talk about the yield theory and some of the three core actions that you describe in the book, listen, validate, and explore options. And and listening and listening with compassion, as you say in the book, is so important. And I've been thinking a lot about compassion and working with that just kind of in my in my own practice. So can we really learn to do this? I mean, listening is a skill, right? It can be developed, but we can really learn to listen more with compassion. Yes, yes, absolutely. So so first of all, modern neuroscience has um, kind of supported the concept that we can, A, increase our ability to take in new information, i.e. listening, and we can also increase our compassion. There are things that you know, and, and I'm sure across all traditions, this can be taught. Um, but in the Buddhist tradition, there definitely are some compassion meditations that have been tested and, and demonstrated neurologically to support the evidence that we can increase our compassion. Here, here's the deal. So I talk about the three core actions. I think it's really easy to be skeptical of other people. I think I think it's super easy to be skeptical of people we disagree with. And and we're all kind of experts in being skeptical of anyone who disagrees with our belief system. But the real question to ask ourselves is, can we be skeptical of ourselves? Can we be skeptical of our own beliefs, our own certainties? And, and this is something like I practice what I teach. Authenticity is important to me because if I didn't practice it, people would see right through me. So I asked myself one day, I said, what do I really do? Like, Diane, I'm thinking to myself, like, what is it that I do? And I think, okay, be in a real skeptical view, I listen to people, I validate them, and then I explore options with them. And it sounds so straightforward, but the reality is that is what I do. Those are the actions. Now, as you'll read about in the book, there are seven fundamental components that drive the way I do this. But anyway, I was speaking a few years back at a mental health convention. There were about 500 people there. And a woman, I was this keynote speaker, and this woman came up to me at the break, and she looked at me very condescending, very condescendingly, and she said, that's your big, that's your big theory, three things. <laughs> and I said, and I said to her, yes, but if you think about it, all Bruce Lee ever did was move block and hit. He did pretty well for himself. <laughs> so if we break it down and we say, what do you really do? Yeah, that's it. But you know, as well as I do, it's not just saying the words, listen, validate, explore options. It's how you listen, how you validate, 
and how you explore options. We might all know the idea of move, block, and hit, but that doesn't make us as proficient as Bruce Lee. In the same way, we might know, well, sure, I listened to people before. I've validated people. I've explored options, but it's how you do it. And I train people in doing that with compassion. And my goodness, does that radically change And you say it's really important to really understand where that person is coming from. And that can really be a challenge. And I'm sure in your work, you've experienced this where, you know, say if you're dealing with a really violent person that's had a horrible background, I mean, is that really possible? You know, how can we really put ourselves in those positions? It's actually, I, I, I would... I would say that it's not as challenging once you practice it. Once you practice it, you you like everything else, you make the switch. And I think that's the hesitancy a lot of people give me at first is they say, well, well, I can't accept that they did this. Well, the reality is they did it. So I just the way I say there are two kinds of people, I say there are two worlds. There's what I call the the cartoon world, which is the world of that shouldn't have happened. He shouldn't have done it. And the the that's the cartoon world. The real world is he did it. He did do that. And so now I can either align my expectations with the way that I think the world should be or shouldn't be, and then I'm let down, or I could learn to align my expectations with reality, in which case I'll be more prepared to handle it. So to put yourself in someone else's shoes, what I did is I took the concept of walking a mile in someone's shoes and I amplified that. I thought, I don't want to just walk a mile in their shoes. I want to say, if I had that person's cognitive functioning, in other words, their ability, their, their, their intelligence, if I had their affective range, their ability to experience emotions, and I had their life experiences, who am I to say that I would have done anything differently from what the way they did it? And what that has done for me, it allows me to set aside judgment and sit with people. I meet them where they are and I say, look, I can't change one second of the past. I don't even care about what you've done in life. What I care about is what you do from this moment forward. It's almost like when you're dealing with people um, in grief, where I may be talking with someone who's lost a child, or and and I could never really know what that feels like because I don't have children and I've I've never lost a child, but I can I can empathize with that pain. So probably the worst thing I could say to them was would be I know how you feel because they would know I really don't. Yes, yes, that is it. That is it. So I would say after more than 20,000 plus clinical counseling hours where I sat and visualize that 20,000 hours of clinical experience, and that's not even all the supervision and everything else I've done for the last 21 years. And here's what I would say. I only preface that for this reason. I don't think I understand anyone. (laughs) And I'm really confident in the way I say that. And here's what I mean by that. I might understand the anxiety someone else feels. I might understand what they're communicating to me, but I can only understand my experience of anxiety. And so it's only our egos that like to tell us, well, I know exactly what that person has gone through. I've been there, done that. That's ego because our essence knows that we haven't had every experience. And guess what? That doesn't mean that we can't connect with people. It doesn't mean we can't be there with them because I've looked at people and I've said, listen, I might, I know my experience of, of the emotion you're describing. I don't know yours, but I can promise you like I'm hearing what you're communicating and I'm here with you. And that's a big difference between that and saying, 
I know exactly what you're going through. This is what's happening. What it does, Diane, is it, it lets me approach people with humility and to say, I don't know exactly what you've gone through, but I'm here with you. And, I'll and that's listen. a big difference. Like, like you just explained, that makes so much sense. You know, as I was reading through the book and you really offer these, you know, great uh, scenarios and, and teaching um, teachable moments, I guess you could call them in the book. And what, um, what I really took away from uh, part of it was the way that you talk to people, some of the phrases that we should avoid. And I thought this was important because this is something that you can put into play, you know, right away. So it was interesting, the phrases that you mentioned, and I love this because I've used these so many times, you know, we need to talk. How many times have you heard that? <laughs> let's sit on that for a minute. Yeah, let's sit on that one for a minute. Like, that's so funny because think about that. In the history of the world, when has we need to talk been followed up by, you know, Diane, I've been wanting to tell you how incredible you are recently, but I just haven't found the right words. <laughs> and normally we need, <laughs> we need to talk is followed up by all the things you've done. And that wrong. puts people on the defensive. And I never thought about that. And then when I was reading the book, I'm like, oh, you know, that makes so much sense. Like we need to talk that puts automatically the person's defensive and they're in that, you know, fight or flight mode. They're getting ready for the next thing that you need that you're going to say of what you need to talk about. And then a couple of the others I thought were really good, you know, well, you mentioned you need to calm down. Now that's never worked in, in, his, in history. <laughs> that's awesome. And so I'm training the entire state of Pennsylvania has adopted my yield theory. So I'm training 18,000 employees in yield theory right now. And that's really funny because in the prison system, that's a really common thing that guards will say, uh, you need to calm down. And I'm like, let me just ask you personally, please stand up. You can stand up on a chair. You can stand up on the table if this has happened to you. When is the last time someone's told that to you and you've said, oh my goodness, you know, you're right. I just didn't even think about it that way. I do just need to calm Never. down. <laughs> no, we get the That's so funny angry. because you're right. When, when someone says, you need to calm down, what do you mean I need to calm down? You know, or I'm not going to calm down. So you, you definitely wouldn't approach the person right. with, with that phrase, you know. And then the other the other ones I thought were good. You know, let me tell you why you're wrong. And and for me, that would really make me angry. You know, if it, if it was a man, then as a woman, you'd say, oh, now he's mansplaining. Forget it. And you're not going to listen to anything. Forget it. That's already right. gone out the window. So saying something like that immediately is going to put someone on the defensive, right? Right. And so the essence of yield theory, if someone's just tuning in, like understand the essence of yield theory is this. I realized a long time ago that there is a difference between talking just to talk so you can beat on your chest and say, well, I told them. And there's a difference between doing that and actually impacting people. And if you want to truly impact people, then instead of talking just to talk so that your ego can say, I told them I'm, I'm, I'm woke. I have all the answers. You speak so that you can actually be heard. And the way to do that is to get around people's defensiveness. And the only way to get around their defensiveness, well, the methodology that I have found for getting around people's defensiveness is that listen, validate, explore options, put yourself behind the eyes of someone else and see your own self from their perspective see what they're seeing, feel what they're feeling, at least attempt to, and then communicate. We should avoid always, never, everybody, nobody can't stand it. And, and using, using those words is not, 
is not going to overcome their defensiveness, right? Right. I mean, so let's say someone's, let's say you're really upset with your loved one and you're like, you always do this. If they can think of one time in the last 30 years where they haven't done it, they can challenge you and say, no, I don't always do it. And technically they're right. And now you're caught up on this little ridiculous ego argument about who's right and who's wrong when the truth is you're just hurt right now that the person hasn't followed through with what you asked recently. And so when we, what I tell people is this, imagine that you can try this exercise. In fact, for all, all of your listeners out there right now, try this exercise, speak, be angry at whatever you want to be angry at, but speak accurately. Don't speak in hyperbole. Try very hard to avoid the extremes and just be accurate. And now what we have is this. So I was doing a training last week and I just, just, just really big guy stood up and he said, he seemed like the whole time in the training, he seemed like he was physically, he didn't seem like he was into it. And then he stood up and he said, you know, I tried this stuff and here's what happened. I was angry at my ex and I started to say all this stuff. And then I realized I used accurate language like we practiced the day before. And he goes, this is unfortunate. And he said, I couldn't even be angry saying it in an accurate way because, yeah, something might be in unfortunate, but that doesn't mean it's the end of the world. It's terrible. It's awful. It's it's, you know, it's horrible. It's unfortunate. That's more accurate. But when we can be accurate, and so here's my pro tip, try the next thing that you're upset about, try explaining it without adjectives. Oh, I'll have to try that. That's interesting. Because <laughs> I don't I don't know if I could do it. Well, think somebody cuts you off in traffic and you say that whatever, you could call them a name and you say, I can't believe they did that. And instead you go, that car just pulled in front of my car. <laughs> really, that's really all that happened. So in your in your experience, would you say, do you think everyone can change? Is it possible? Um, I do believe that because I believe uh, profoundly in what I do. I'm 46 years old. I've been doing this for a long time. And I and I see people who've done the most horrific things to others. I don't think that it's re- that necessarily everyone is going to follow through with changing. I think they have the potential. Um, there are people, for instance, who have had significant head trauma. And sometimes if you've had head trauma, that inhibits your ability, your impulse control, that can make it more challenging. But I like to take the optimistic view that it's possible for everyone to change. But I balance that with a very realistic view that past behavior is the best predictor of future behavior. So if they haven't shown a proclivity toward wanting to change or trying, that they're not really likely to make a change. But I'm always hesitant to step back in public and say, especially in my position, say there are some people who will never change because I guarantee whoever's listening has already identified someone in their life that hurt them emotionally and said, see, they'll never change. (laughs) And that's confirmation bias. So I'd say, yeah, it's possible for people to change, but I wouldn't want to put my my power and control in someone else's hand. Right, because you mentioned four stages of change. And I thought that was really interesting in the book. And I was thinking of different people in my own life where I've wanted them to change or where I've had conversations about their behaviors and they agree. So like like you said, people will know that there's more than one person has said, look, you're angry or you're defensive or you're this. So they know that there's a piece that needs to change, but they're kind of stuck in that in that place. Like they're aware of it, but they can't or they won't. Right. And so so that's true of all of us. So there are things called stages of change. And it's in a lot of what's called um, 
drug and alcohol and lit- and addiction literature. Uh, Prochatsky and DiClemente are the ones who founded that approach. But what they say is every time you make a change, you have to go through this series of stages. And one of them is you're not even thinking about change. The next one is you're thinking about it, but you're not ready to do anything. The next one is you're making small changes. And then finally, you're actually changing. And, and the reason why I teach them in my book is I say, it's so important to know this, because if you start talking to someone as though uh, she should be changing, and she's in the stage where she's just thinking about it, well, you're talking to the you're not even you're not it's like, it's like being on one side of the football field, they're on the other side, and you're whispering, and you're going, she should be hearing me right now. Well, no, she's not going to hear you. Um, you need to be able to be mindful to meet people where they are. And whereas we're very quick to point out how other people aren't changing in a particular area of their lives, we're very quick to minimize how we're not changing in parts of our lives, for instance, in expanding our compassion or our awareness that others are also struggling. I was thinking about this because there's a couple of different shows on Netflix where, you know, people will be part of an extreme, you know, white nationalist hate group, and then they're able they're able to make a change. And I just was thinking in that, in those four stages, you know, like, wow, how, how tough is that? You know, if you're, if you're so identified with a mindset of thinking a certain way, I'm trying to remember the name of the guy in the Netflix thing and I can't, but he had a bunch of, of tattoos of, you know, white nationalist symbols and things like that. And he went through this whole process of change where he had all these removed and, and it was really powerful where his, his mindset just shifted. But this is this is so powerful because we can sit back and say, well, um, people should think this way. And you might have a beautiful, wonderful thought about how people should be. But there's a big difference between you standing on your soapbox telling them that and you actually really trying to see the world from their perspective. In other words, one thing has led to another in the story of your life. And the truth is is one thing has led to another in the story of everyone's life. And for me, explaining behavior has nothing to do with condoning it. And that's often a misconception. People say, well, if you're validating, you're, no, I'm not condoning it. I'm acknowledging where people are. And I think that people get so caught up with ego, like I have the right answers and I'm right and you're wrong. And I'm just going to tell you how you're wrong. But I think that's a mistake. I think we're living in darkness when we're doing that because we're thinking, I'm right, you're wrong, one up, one down. Well, the problem with that is you're not actually making a change. So yield theory is saying, how can I meet people where they are and actually impact their behavior? A piece of that I wanted to ask you about is you say not to ask people why. And I've wanted to ask that of so many people in our current political climate, and I won't get all political, but, you know, obviously people have really strong opinions, right? I mean, they believe one way, you know, they're wrong, I'm right. Right, And I really want to know, so instead of me saying why, like, I I really honestly want to know why do you really believe this? But I shouldn't say that, right? Yes. Okay. Right, right, right. So the real simple explanation for this is, is what I've seen is, think about the first time you've ever been asked the question why. Well, if you if you really think back, you were probably in trouble as a kid. <laughs> so you got ingrained early on. You just did something. Why'd you do that? And so you got ingrained early on that when the word why comes up, it tends to trigger defensiveness. So I say 
you know, I'm not saying never ask why, but I'm saying I, what I try to advocate in the book is be mindful that what your words are actually eliciting in others. And if you choose to say why and someone gets defensive, it's quick to point all the blame onto them. See, they're being defensive. But what if you could control the only part you can actually control yourself and recognize that by you're using the phrase, you're using the word why, you actually evoked defensiveness in them. Um, just as someone would evoke that in you. And when it comes to the political discussion, like the analogy of the box is really, truly, I think, the essence of what I do. Well, it to me is the cornerstone of what I do. And, and so what happened was when my daughter was five years old, she's 14 now, but when she was five, she came home from school one day and a kid had a, uh, someone handed her a pamphlet and it said, this is the truth. And it was about a religious belief that was different from our own. But she looked at me and she said, Daddy, this must be true because it says this is the truth. So I took her up to her playroom and I, and I had her lie down on, the, on her stomach on the, on the floor. And I put a big box in front of her. And I had her close her eyes and I set up some different objects around the box. So then when, she, when I had her open her eyes, she could only see one side of the box. And I said, what do you see there? And I had a little pony set up. She said, my little pony. I said, Great. Is it true that there's a My Little Pony right there? Yes. That's truth, right? Yes. Now, is it true there's a My Little Pony on every side of the box? And she said, yes. So I scoot her over so she could see two sides. And on the other side, I had a little book set up. And she said, oh, it's a book. And I said, that's okay. Just because it's a book here, does it make it any less true that there's a pony on the other side? No, that's still truth, right? So then I said to her, and remember, she's five during this lesson. I said, is it true that there's a My Little Pony and a book on the other two sides? And she said, now, Daddy, I don't know. And I said, that's it. When you can learn to understand that the people who wrote that pamphlet and follow that way, for them, they see that side of the box. That might very well be truth to them, and that's okay. But that doesn't necessarily tell the story of the entire box. Well, this and then and then I kind of ended that lesson with the opening lines of the Tao Te Ching, which are the Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. The name that can be named is not the eternal name. In other words, whatever divine being or entity exists is beyond words or description. But the more practical lesson from that was this: when people speak with their certainty, that's their side of the box. Maybe they see one, maybe they see two sides of the box. But the reality is. There's another side. There's something else out there that we don't know. And that other side of the box, when we tell ourselves that we know that side, that's ego. Because to me, Diane, that box is the human psyche. And just the way you have things that only you know about and I have things only I know about, so does every listener out there. And whereas we know that about ourselves, we tend to downplay that in others. But the truth is everyone has more to them than what we truly fully see. And when we can start to approach people with the humility and compassion of understanding, they see a side of the box that we don't see. Instead of bemoaning, you know, the question, why, why do you think that? It made me make, do that little shift where I was thinking, well, what caused you to have that point of view? Or what is the reason? Like really digging in a little bit more. And then I would eventually get the reason why right? If I ask the right questions. So I, I thought that was so interesting. Yeah. Well, and I really would love the opportunity to jump on that and say this. I used to say to my students, 
you can tell what kind of student you are by two quick things. One, if you ask the question why, even if I'm telling you not only if you read it, but if I teach it to you, I want you questioning why. But here's how you can tell you if you're a great student. Good students ask why, but great students actually pursue an answer. See, it's one thing to be like, why do they do that? But it's another thing to go, wait, why? Now, let me really try to find out. Because once you really walk in the shoes of someone else, you say, oh, my goodness, there is a reason why this person is doing this. And that shifts things. That shifts things. The other thing around like the most heated topic in the world in America, politics, is I had an opportunity early in my career to work with people who are very well known, but I could never say because of the aspect of which I work with them on both sides of the fence. And I can tell you this, they were extraordinarily different from what they presented to the public. And so early on, I learned that there was a whole lot more to the box than what the public is seeing. So it's 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 a little bit easier for me to look at anything I'm shown on television and go, uh, I know there's I know there's more to that story than what's going on, um, which has helped me expand my vision and realize that we're all human, we're all struggling. I mean, this book is really important, and I think we should all read it, you know, and and question what we're asking and how we're judging people, and and maybe the world will be a little more peaceful <laughs> moving forward. I I can only hope, and I'd love for people to be able to get in touch with you. What's the best way that they can find you? So, I mean, one of the easiest ways to learn about my work is just go to YouTube and type in Dr. Christian Conte, C-O-N-T-E. There's lots of free videos for you. Um, you can go to my website, drchristianconte.com. I actually do a call-in radio show every Monday night on uh, kdkaradio.com. Um, so there's lots of different ways, all that social media stuff. You know, I put my heart and soul into everything I do. I practice the message that I'm sharing with the world. And I'm, I feel grateful to, I'm so thankful to you for taking time to A, interview me, and then also actually reading the book. Like, this is really moving to me. I don't take it for granted, the fact that you, A, chose to have me on your show, and B, took the time to read my book. It's been really helpful, and I so appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for joining me for the conversation today. I'm Diane Ray, and if you're interested in finding peace with yourself and your world, definitely check out Dr. Christian Conti's work. It is so fascinating. His website is Dr. Christian Conti, that's C-O-N-T-E.com. And the book is called Walking Through Anger, A New Design for Confronting Conflict in an Emotionally Charged World. We definitely need this information. It's available at Amazon or wherever you get your favorite books. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Hey, it's Radley Valentine. Join me for a brand new way of connecting with your angels on my new podcast, The Angel Tarot Show. Each week, you'll meet your angelic guides and guardians and find new ways to unlock unconditional love, tune into your intuitive abilities, and create the joy-filled life that, well, 
you've always wanted. Plus, you'll get a useful and timely energetic weather report, bringing you guidance for the coming week. Tap into the healing, hope, and guidance that's all around you on the Angel Tarot Show, exclusively on mindbodyspirit.fm.